0: You're listening to TIP.
1: You don't see a P of a shillopee of 40 at a trough. You see a shillopee of 40 like very, very rarely, very close to the peak. And so the last time we saw a shillopee of 40, it was, I forget exactly, but it might've been February 2009 and had about nine or 10 months before we hit 45 just at Give you an idea of how fast the market ran up then. And there's nothing that's, there's nothing magic about 45 either. The Chinese stock market got
2: to 100 times. The Japanese stock market got to 100 times. On today's episode, I sit down to chat with Toby Carlisle. Toby is the founder of the Acquirer's Multiple and the Acquirer's Funds, which manages tickers ZIG and DEEP, Zig and Deep. Toby has extensive experience in investment management, business valuation, public company governance, and corporate law, and he's also the author of a number of books, including The Acquirer's Multiple and Deep Value. Toby is also a part of the mastermind group on TIP's flagship show, We Study Billionaires. During the episode, we chat about what led Toby to become a value investor, what mean reversion is, and how it relates to his overall investment strategy, how inflation impacts his investment process, what the Schiller PE is, and why it's something to be mindful of, what his thoughts are on determining an appropriate discount rate, and much, much more. Now, without further delay, sit back and enjoy this episode with Toby Carlisle.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's show, I'm joined by Toby Carlisle. Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Clay. Good to see you. So you've been on the Millennial Investing Podcast with Robert. That was episode 25, released way back in March 2020. So that was probably recorded just prior to the crash we saw during that time period. You've also been on many episodes on TIP's flagship show, We Study Billionaires, in particular their quarterly mastermind episodes. I highly recommend that the listeners check those out as well. And like many of us at TIP, you are a value investor and a fan of Warren Buffett. I'm curious, how did you end up becoming a value investor yourself? I was
1: studying, I was in Australia, I was at university and did undergrad, and then I did law and graduated from law in the early 2000s. And a friend of mine said, the richest man in the world is Warren Buffett and he owns an insurance company. And I said, that, that sounds awful, <laughs> you know, good for him. And he said, he writes these letters that are on the internet, which you can read for free, which are like these extraordinary explanations of what business is all about. And we were kind of interested in it. We were like, you know, it's the dot com heyday, dot com boom. And I think like everybody at the time, everybody kind of knew it was a little bit fugazi, you know, it was fake, but it was hard not to get caught up in it. But so we were looking for something that was a little bit more real. And I bought the Buffett book. I bought it on Amazon, which was like, that was kind of a new thing in Australia. So I bought, I bought um, the Roger Lowenstein book, Making It of an American Capitalist. Read the book and I was like, oh, this is for me. I like this idea of studying businesses and, uh, you know, it's not, it's something that you can take your time. It's okay to sort of be patient and take time and learn these things. You don't have to be like a trading all the time or any of that kind of stuff. Cause I didn't really want to do that. I like, I do like business. I think they have kind of interesting little puzzles to solve and investing is an interesting little puzzle to solve every day. Like I get to look at a new little puzzle and try to solve that puzzle. So it appealed to me that I was already studying law or about to start studying law. And so I did that. And started practicing law. And I did that for almost 10 years as a merger and acquisitions guy. And funnily enough, I did tech MA. So I got transferred to San Francisco from Australia to our San Francisco office where I was doing like Yahoo. Actually, I was doing a lot of that. I was doing a lot of their bolt-on acquisitions. It was kind of fun. There wasn't much going on in San Francisco at the time. It was kind of quiet. It was 2004, five, six, which was like I think Google went public in 2004, did this reverse Dutch auction, which was a disaster. And it was like listed at, I can't remember what that, what I tra- I don't know what it translates into now, but it was like 80 bucks. I was really interested in it and I had a look at it. Like the only thing that I knew lots of uh, software engineers in Silicon Valley and they were all trying to come up with things that use Google Maps, which was the new thing at the time and trying to build something. And then what they would like, you'd come up with a mission burrito locator and sell that. You know, aqua hire, which is like they, they want to, they really want to hire the engineer because he sort of knows what he's doing with with Google Maps, but they don't want to buy the business so much. They just get the business and shuttle the business, a, a little mission burrito located. But now they've got a guy who knows what he's doing with that sort of stuff. So you get a little hiring bonus. And uh, I thought, there's nothing going on here. I'm going to go back to Australia and be uh, general counsel of an, AS, an Australian stock exchange listed telecommunications. Like dark fibre infrastructure company, that was fun, but it got bought. And then I had a little bit of money, and I decided I wanted to go back to being an investor again. So I, or or go back to, to like learn how to become an investor, not go back to being an investor again. And I had remembered that in the early two thousands, you know, I was interested in like the Ben Graham net nets, which are things that are trading below sub liquidation values, the most conservative assessment of value that you can do. And I had seen in the early 2000s, all of these things, You know, they don't come out very often. You only see them at the bottom of a bust. And when they do, they generate really good returns. And I thought, if that ever happens again, I'll go back and start doing that stuff. And in 2007, eight, nine, at the bottom of that bust, there were all of these net nets around. So I started a little blog called greenbacked.com. And I just wrote about little net nets that had an activist who was planning to bust the Company up, or get the money out, or do something like that, and it was a good strategy for the time. But it, it, you know, it kind of disappeared again pretty quickly. So then I was concentrating on trying to develop my own investment style. You know, being a, probably more towards the more traditional end of value than even Buffett. I think that as I've gone along, I've learned more about business quality, and I've got better at assessing businesses and things like that. So that's where I, I find myself now. I run two funds a mid-cap and bigger fund called the Acquirer's Fund, which is the ticker ZIG, and that that you know, very traditional kind of maybe not quite where Buffett is, where Buffett's sort of looking for that wonderful business at, at, a, at a fair price. I'm still a little bit more at the fairer business end of that, but at a very deep price, very cheap price. And then there's a small and micro version of Zig called Deep D E E P. And it does exact it's exactly the same. It's just in the you know the universe that is not Zig. So it's the the small and micro universe, exactly the same investment style. Something could come out of deep and go into zig or vice versa if it if it gets too small. And and that's sort of that's that's the path basically.
2: Yeah, you mentioned your funds. I'd like to dig into those a little bit later and dig into your investment process first and how you think as an investor. So you talked about Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Were there any other investors that had a big influence on your development as an investor?
1: Well, Graham was an early activist. People who like to read security analysis, which is the, the old Graham and Dodd book, which is a really, really tough read. I mean, the, the first one that I, that I got, like, it's like this. Um, you know, you're declaring who you are as an investor when you which version of it you buy. So I bought the like. You could get the original. Was like a it not you know it's it's a reprint of the original. It's not. I haven't got the original version of it. I've got some bootleg. <laughs> I think it's I think it's published by the same publisher. But, and I bought it. You know, like in nineteen ninety seven or something like that. And it was it was just brutal to read it. But I kind of got all the way through it. And then I didn't touch it. You know, for ten years. When until I started trying to do more than that. When I tried to start doing this stuff again. And I just remembered that he had written the the chapter on liquidation value. And I forget exactly where it is now, but it's like chapter 38 or something like that. And then right the next chapter is, is the chapter on the relationship of management. And it's a little bit about activism. And so if you start along that path, you, know, you find yourself with Car, Carl Icahn. And I found this great book on Carl Icahn. I had to buy it from like a, it's been reprinted now, but it was like, I think it's called King Icahn. And I bought it from like a I had to go and find a like a, a secondhand bookstore or a vintage bookstore, and I bought that and I read it, and I was like, oh, "This is pretty. This is pretty fun." You know what he's what he's kind of trying to do. It's like a it's like a more modern version of of what Graham was doing, and so I became interested in that for a long period of time. Eventually, I sort of figured out the problems with with his approach. It really does require you to get control and that's you need certain amounts of capital to kind of do that and you really need to know what you're doing it's expensive to go through it you know i had done this as a corporate lawyer i'd gone through proxy fights and hostile takeovers and liquidations and lbos and all that sort of stuff and i kinda had an idea how much work was involved and how much expense particularly if you got a corporate law firm doing that stuff like you're going to write some really big checks as an investor and it's just it became clear to me that that was really not a uh, not a realistic approach for me and probably for most investors. And so then I thought, well, if you can't get control of these things, what are you going to look for? And if you can't get control, you need to be pretty confident that management is doing a good job. And then how do you assess whether management's doing a good job? And it's, I think it's things like looking for, are they taking advantage of un- If the company is undervalued, so let's stipulate that we're already value guys, we're going and we're finding these things that are undervalued. What would you want management to do? What would you do as an outside investor? Okay, what would you want management to do? You want them to buy back stock, you want them to do stuff like that. So that became a bigger part of the process that what is management doing with this undervaluation? That's sort of now there's lots of research that shows that all of the steps that, you know, I try to do all of these things that add probabilistically. To help me in the outcome. And one of them is, you know, buying stuff that is undervalued is a very powerful tool to help you generate very good returns. Buying stuff where management is buying back a material amount of stock is another really good way to help you with good returns. And then you want to be able to make some assessments about the business. And I became very interested in that research and I posted a lot of it on Greenbacked in 9, 10, when I was sort of writing that consistently. And then I partnered with Wes Gray. And we went he was our booth PhD candidate at the time. And we went and found every bit of industry and academic research we could on on fundamental analysis and credit and stuff like that. And so we went through and we built this model, which became a book called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. And that's sort of the it's less individual personalities and more sort of what quantitatively drives returns for fundamental investors. And that's sort of how I've Developed as an investor. So since then, I've just refined that approach.
2: Now, when I did research on you, you talk a ton about mean reversion. And over the last decade, we have seen growth outperform value by a significant margin. And growth seems to just get more and more expensive relative to value. Could you tell our audience what mean reversion is from an investment standpoint and how it relates to your investment strategy? There are two broad theories about how why value outperforms.
1: And one is the Fama and French theory that value generates higher returns because it is riskier. And they, often they point to the fact that value firms tend to... Particularly if you're using price to book as your value definition, which most academics do, you will find that they tend... What you think you're buying is like a billion dollars of assets for $100 million. And that's a price to book of, you know, uh, one of like 10, something like that. one tenth. In fact, what you're doing is buying a billion dollars of assets with $900 million of debt for $10 million. So it gets you the same price to book, same amount of assets, but it's heavily levered it and therefore it's riskier. And that's where all the return comes from. And they might be in declining businesses. Lots of other things might be going on that make them riskier to assess from the outset. And I use the, the scare quotes, the air quotes, that kind of they're not necessarily riskier. The other view is this Lakonashik Shalifa Vishni paper called Contrarian Value came out in 1994. They said the driver of values returns is behavioral and it's because investors extrapolate good returns too far into the future or bad returns too far into the future or bad stock price trajectories, sales, like take your pick, whatever whatever series that you can get that's either fundamental or stock price. They just keep on assuming that whatever trend the company is currently on goes on. Or when there is some sort of shock to the business, some, you know, some bad news comes out, they sell off really hard. They overreact, so that, and it's this overreaction, underreaction that creates opportunities for people who what they who are what they call contrarian investors, but it's basically a value investor to come in and buy it, and then it mean reverts, so it goes back to where it was, and that's a very simple, kind of concept to understand. And I I feel like that is a more realistic explanation of what I actually have seen in the market repeatedly. And if you see some bad news in a company, it will violently sell off. And then often that will continue on for a few days or weeks or months even. At some point, it might get too cheap. And if you've got some objective way of assessing the valuation that doesn't look at the stock price and you can go in and say well this was bad news but this doesn't really impact their business so much or it impacts their business much much less than the stock price would suggest then this might be an opportunity for some better performance and on the other side you might say well this this thing it has been doing very well for a long period of time but it it's it sort of departed from its fundamentals a long time ago and now it's really trading on sentiment like it people talk about it at dinner parties or you know at bars or they talk about it with their friends they can see this thing it went up 30% last year, went up 80% the year before that, this thing just goes up. And so they buy it and it gets that ski slope kind of you know, trend to the, to the stock price. And they're like, you can't lose on this thing. And that's over extrapolation to the upside. So that's, sort of, that's the idea. Mean reversion is this idea that things go back to the mean, go back to average. The mean moves around your job as an analyst is to sort of figure out where the valuation is in that. And I think the mean is about valuation. Stock prices do tend to sort of circulate around the mean and they, they, they sort of fluctuate a lot over the course of the year. I, th- I think the statistic was something like from its peak to its trough, the average stock is like one third or up three times. So if you have a way of assessing the value and you can find it trading at a big discount, you buy it and th- the value, eventually the stock price goes back to its value or even beyond it. And then that's mean reversion. That's how value investors are, are really generating their returns.
2: Like you mentioned, part of that is human psychology. When things are good and stocks, quote unquote, only go up, people will pay whatever price necessary to get in on the action. And when there's blood on the streets, people will do whatever they can to get rid of their shares, no matter the price. And we've seen it over the last
1: year or so with many of the high flyers the names that were you just couldn't uh, not own at any price that like they were just they were going up all the time zoom is a great example but like zoom was just going to dominate everything else like a lot of these names are off 50 to 60 to 70% and their underlying businesses are still pretty good their businesses are growing they're still making money they they're growing fast it's just that the valuation gets so far ahead of them that you can't make money as an investor even if the business does very well and vice versa. That's something that often, you know, it hasn't been a strategy that's worked well for the last 10 years. So a lot of people have completely dismissed value. But there is this other idea that you, know, you, you can assess a business and say, this is not a great business, but this is a sufficiently good business. And I'm, a, I'm like a handicapper at a, at a racetrack. It's not a great business, but it's being priced as if it's an absolute garbage business that's going out of business completely. Like it might be liquidated and here it is. It doesn't have to do much. Like it's got to get out of bed in the morning and keep on going and you get pretty good returns. And that's sort of the opportunities that I'm looking for stuff that doesn't have to do anything heroic to generate pretty good returns. That's a, it's a strategy that hasn't worked for a little while, but it's, it seems to have turned the corner in about September last year. And there might be a, a more of a return to sort of fundamental value, I think. Let's
3: take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.
3: carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
4: Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
2: All right, back to the show. One metric I've heard you mention before is the Schiller PE ratio. Today, that's sitting at around 40. And the only time it's ever been higher than that is during the dot-com bubble where it you know, almost touched 45 before the market crashed. Could you touch on what the Schiller PE ratio is and why it's something that's on your radar? So this is not
1: something that I, I don't use this in my investment process at all. This is sort of more of a macro indicator, looking at where the market itself is, the index is. And I just use it to, to just a little contextualize a little bit where we are in the cycle you don't see a P of a shillipi of 40 at a trough. You see a shillipi of 40 like very, very rarely, very close to the peak. And so the last time we saw a shillipi of 40, it was, I forget exactly, but it might've been February 2009 and had about nine or 10 months before we hit 45 just at Give you an idea of how fast the market ran up then. And there's nothing there's nothing magic about 45 either. The Chinese stock market got to a hundred times, the Japanese stock market got to hundred times, but they have subsequently had Japan, particularly, we all know that Japan's had terrible returns since it peaked in like 1990 or 1992, something like that. It's been very tough for, for Japanese investors to make money at the index level. So what the Shiller PE is, the reason I say forty is you don't see that at tr- you, you may see forty on the on the single year PE. So if we just look at this year's earnings, I think that the single year PE for the index might only be like twenty seven, something like that. And that's because there's this business cycle in earnings. So earnings go up through the business cycle, and then they go down through the trough. And so in 2008, when the banks wrote off all of their earnings, the earnings for the entire index was zero. So the the PE was infinite, which would make you think it's very expensive, but it was actually one of the best times to to buy. The thing that has been cheaper was the Shiller PE. And the reason that it was able to do that is it uses a 10-year average of inflation-adjusted earnings. So it grosses up. Earnings from 10 years ago are going to be lower just by virtue of the fact that we've printed a whole lot more money since then. So You have to adjust those earnings from 10 years ago up for inflation. And then you just take an average of all of them and you compare that to the current price. And you can track that series through time back to about 1850. And that's why we know that it got expensive in 1929. It was unusually cheap in 1980. And you can see these sort of peaks and troughs. And you'd recognize every single peak as a very famous boom, bubble, stock market, bull market. And you see the troughs is all very famous dates where, or infamous dates where people were like the death of equities type articles appearing in Newsweek and things like that, right when they're about to go on a great run. And you can do this analysis. So just the Shiller PE doesn't tell you much other than that the market is overvalued or undervalued, but you can make some assumptions that, all right, we know we're going to get a dividend. Well, this is where we are right now. We're going to get a dividend of about 1.3%. If we assume that we return to, so we do some mean reversion, we assume that over a decade, we're going to go back to about the long run Shiller P, which is 16 or 17. What will that mean for the index? Well, it's negative returns on the index to the tune of about 1.2% a year. So the, in, the, the whole market will generate returns of about negative 1.2, but that includes 1.3% in dividends. So your total return is only negative to the tune of about 0.1% per year, but you're going to be a dividend clipper. So it's possible that in a decade, the index is where it is today. And through the interim, you've you've got 1.3% a year in dividends. Now, th- those aren't great returns. The reason we are where we are is because interest rates are so low. I think the 10-year today is something like 1.5%. So 1.3% in a, in a dividend might be Attractive. It's not for me. I think you can you can look at the. You don't have to buy the index. You can buy value stocks, and value is um, relative to the index at a very very wide spread, which means that value is reasonably cheap at the moment. So that's why it hasn't happened yet. But I, I do think at some stage the index will sort of wake up to reality and typically what happens is there's there's either a crash or stagnation for a long period of time like Japan has stagnated but value did very well in Japan. If you were just a simple you bought price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, just buy the cheapest stuff, buy and hold it for a year, rebalance the portfolio at the end of the year, you've actually to get generate really really good returns in Japan over that period because that that mechanism of buying too cheaply and then selling when it gets a little bit more expensive and then rebalancing back into cheap stuff and and selling as they go up a little bit, as they get close to the the mean, that little bit of mean reversion. That's been a way to generate returns in Japan. There's a reasonable chance that that is what happens here. I'm not relying on that. I don't need any sort of multiple expansion for my portfolio to work because I can do another assessment of value in the portfolio, which is a little bit like I referred to before, but you get a dividend yield. And then I can look at the return on equity and the payout ratio for a company. So I know roughly what it's reinvesting in itself. And I can look at the rent that it's likely to earn. So the return on equity tells you what it's going to earn on the reinvestment. And that gives you the incremental... Growth over a year, and with that dividend yield and that incremental growth, you can generate an expected return for most for stocks. And I think that the expected return for value is is higher than it ordinarily is right now, even ignoring the likelihood of the multiple expanding to get closer to the to the average multiple, which might generate some additional return, but it's unnecessary. It's purely an expected return. So I think that. It's it's it's. I'm sort of in two minds. On one hand, I am nervous about the index itself because typically there are sell-offs when they get to these kinds of levels, and that will undoubtedly impact my stocks as well. They won't be immune to something like that. But I can see an expected return for for my stocks that is pretty good, higher than usual, and I think that they should do pretty well. Like value will probably have a similar performance to the one that it had in the early 2000s through to the mid-2000s where it was doing pretty well while the index
2: was flat. So you mentioned that the overall market could very well be flat over the next decade. Like you mentioned, part of that is human psychology. When things are good and stocks, quote unquote, only go up, people will pay whatever price necessary to get in on the action. And when there's blood on the streets... People will do whatever they can to get rid of their shares no matter the price. And that value has higher than expected returns than what we typically see. If you had to put a number on that, what is your expected return?
1: I don't want to like step into any compliance issues by like giving giving numbers, but I think that you could what I like to do, it's really simple thing to do. You could go to Morningstar, you could pull up my funds, and you could do that calculation that so what people always say there's not much information in multiples. So price earnings, price to book, dividend yield. Well, what does the underlying business look like? How good is the underlying business? I always find that really funny because if you have the price to book ratio of a portfolio and the price to earnings ratio of a portfolio, if you can take out the price, so you can invert both of those, eliminate the price, now you've got earnings on book and that's return on equity. If we have the dividend yield we know how much money is being paid out from the earnings. And we know now how much is being reinvested. So we have the reinvestment rate by the return on equity. And so we can see what we have. Now we have the yield and the incremental returns, and that's an expected return. So I know that that's a little bit complicated. I, I, there's a great book. If you want to learn about this stuff as a, as, an, as a younger investor, the best book I think is the one written by Bruce Greenwald. He was the, he's now retired, but he was the the chair of the Graham and Dodd Chair of Value Investing at Columbia, which is basically where, that's where Graham taught it's the best value school in the country or regarded as the best value school in the country. And his book is the best book, just outlining how you think through a valuation. And he says, you can calculate the liquidation value of a company. Then you can calculate this thing that he calls the earnings power value, which is what the earnings are like without any growth. And then you can calculate a growth value for the company, which is similar to that Explanation that I just gave where you have a dividend yield and a reinvestment rate by return on equity, and that will tell you what these things are worth. And then you can reverse engineer that and apply that to just about any scenario. So it's a really, really simple kind of a tool for assessing these things. You can, once you've programmed it once into Excel, you can just drop the, the numbers in and it will give you a, an expected return number. And then you can spend the rest of your time thinking about whether the company will actually do these numbers in the future, which is where you should be spending most of your time. The quantitative stuff takes care of itself pretty quickly. The more difficult assessment is, you know, so that that kind of valuation wouldn't be appropriate for a cyclical, you know, like a commodity type business. But it might be more appropriate for a business that has some pricing power, that has some visibility into where its earnings are likely to be in the future. And so I, I and I think you can use it for portfolios too, because portfolios have a mix of different businesses. And, and and it sort of eliminates the randomness from from that from that kind of business. And so um that book is an excellent book. Uh, it's like value investing from Graham to Buffett and Beyond. It's in its second edition by Bruce Greenwald. I think that most people regard that as the one of the best introductory books to to value. And that will that will give you that little tool that I discussed. So I think that you can I can see, so there are very growthy companies, very growthy portfolios out there. And I could take that little assessment and I can drop that in and I can see what the expected return for those growthy companies are. And this assumes no mean reversion, just assumes no change in the multiple. That's the most important thing. And so then you can see, well, you can get two portfolios that have the same expected return, but one trades at a huge premium to the market and one trades at a huge discount to the market. And it's possible that as an investor, you don't get the expected return in the one that trades at the premium because mean reversion does still exist over time. Those multiples will come into the market multiple or close to it in both directions. And so that's probably what distinguishes me from a lot of other value investors in this market that I do still pay attention to that stuff. And I can. Look at two portfolios that have the same expected return. And I just prefer the one that has the lower multiple
2: to the one that has the higher multiple. Makes sense. And it's a very interesting approach. Now let's talk about inflation. It's a very hot topic in 2021. Got a lot of people talking about it. The CPI numbers released this month were 6.2% for October, I believe, which many suspect is understated to a large degree. What do you make of the inflation numbers released? If you want to look really
1: foolish in the future, what you should do is try to predict where inflation's going. So I hope someone's listening to this in in 2025 or something like that and says, wow, you got that wrong. This is um, from my perspective, what has happened is the you know, we've had that flash crash in 2020 that rebounded very quickly. The Fed responded very aggressively and printed a lot of money, which it had been doing beforehand. And you can look at the the growth in the Fed balance sheet has been absolutely extraordinary and become it's asymptotically approaching infinite, I think at this point, but it's, it's a very big increase. And at the same time, we've had this supply disruption where goods aren't getting to the States because they're all on container ships that are floating out off the coast here. I can see them every day when I go for a drive around. You can walk to Catalina Island from, from, from Los Angeles. There are so many boats out there and it's affected the air quality here. That's, that's how many container ships are floating around out there. But the result of that, a whole lot of money dumped into the system and a restriction in the goods has created this scenario where we've got this massive increase in the cost of the cost of goods, the, the CPI. And the the argument, there are two arguments essentially. One is that this is transitory. The supply shortages will resolve themselves over time and we'll go back to this, that sort of low inflation I'm using the scare quotes constantly. I never use them. I don't know why I've got them out (laughs) repeatedly for this, but I'm saying low inflation is I don't think it's necessarily low inflation. I think the CPI sort of understates the true rate of inflation because there are lots of government programs attached to CPI that if CPI goes up too fast, they have to spend increasing amounts of money, pensions and so on. So the other argument that says that it's not transitory is that basically we have to keep on printing money at these very high rates or there's the lack of liquidity may cause the stock market to stall out and to crash, so we need to keep on jamming the, the, the money in. And then on the other side, that supply, um, that restriction in supply of all these goods that's sitting on the, the ships out here, that is a scenario that won't be resolved on optimistic assumptions until the end of 2023. When I hear someone saying end of 2023, just knowing how good humans are at assessing the likelihood of things happening that may be the really optimistic outcome. And it may be that we don't know when that's going to be resolved. And as of today, it's the worst that it's ever been, which means it's got progressively worse. And you can pull up these scary looking charts about stuff sitting out there and how long it's been there. And it just keeps on going up every single day. And there's just no way to resolve that situation. You know, There's a, there's a finite number of port facilities. There's a finite number of container ships. There are empty containers. It's, it's a broken supply chain at the moment. We've seen this sort of stuff before in the 70s where you have the cost of consumer goods going up very quickly, wages not keeping up like with, it looks like wage, wages may be going up now a little bit, a lot in real terms. <laughs> They've gone backwards over the last 12 months, despite the fact that everybody thinks they're going up in real terms. They have gone up in nominal terms. My gut feeling is that we are, that this inflation is here to stay for longer. And when these, these scenarios play out, it's better for value guys. As sad as it is for everybody else, it is, it is a good thing for value because value just tends to do better in, in higher inflationary periods. They'll so put interest rates up at some stage. They just sort of have to that will probably precipitate some sort of crash in the stock market. And then it'll be a tough period to invest through. It'll be a tough period to live through, but it'll be good for value, guys. I guess that's the the silver lining for a handful of people like me. I don't think it'll be good for
3: Americans when it happens. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high.
3: It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
4: Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com mi. NetSuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi. All right,
2: back to the show. So does a higher rate of inflation that we're seeing today? Does that affect your investing process at all, or your thought process?
1: No, because it's just it's too it's too hard to predict. Either way, low inflation or high inflation, I would still be trying to buy. I'm still trying to buy cash flows that go out into the future. I'm trying to buy them as cheaply as I possibly can, because business is tough and there's lots of competition out there and uh, lots of. You know, I expect that my businesses decline slightly, but the fact that I've bought them so cheaply, it doesn't matter. You know, things like the level of the stock market and inflation is so hard to predict, so hard to know where they're going to go. You just can't factor that into a process. And I know that there are people who will say, well, go buy gold, go buy crypto. Um, that's one way of protecting. But you, know, you can look at what gold's done for the last 12 months, a pretty good period for inflation, supposedly. It didn't show up. Maybe it went through... Maybe it went through crypto. Maybe people have got a preference for crypto over gold. But then maybe that creates a scenario where gold's going to run really hard and crypto's not because it's expensive. But I just I can't I, I don't have the tools to assess those things. I think that and I don't think that anybody else does either. So I, I think that you just have to be humble and careful through this period. And even being humble and careful, I fully expect to get whacked pretty hard as this, as this happens.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. It reminds me when COVID first hit in March, April 2020, stocks were just going down, 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 is hitting the limit every single day. And I wasn't hearing too many people say, go out and buy stocks because no one knew what the virus was going to do, the effects it would have on the economy. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing with the inflation and supply chain stuff. Like, I don't think anyone really knows the potential impacts over the next, you know, at least a few years out. At least a few years.
1: Yeah, I I was, I, I think that stuff did get pretty cheap. And I think I was recording podcasts at the time. We're doing them live. We're doing them in real time. I think our first live one was whatever Tuesday was closest to the March 2020 bottom. But I would say that for people who went through that and think that that is what a bear market looks like, you should go back and have a look at 2007 to 2009. And like, just hear how long that is 2000, 2001. And then there are others. You know, there are other 73, 74, those sort of bear markets different to the flash crash that we saw. And the difference is that in a bear market, every every rally gets sold to a lower low and it happens over and over and over again for a very long period of time. And you get to this point where you think there's no way in the world, like the 15th rally that gets sold 18 months after the peak. You you just, you're punch drunk and you don't think that it'll ever recover. Uh, that's often the point that it does recover, but there's nobody left to sort of, you know, see it happen. You've got to be, you've got to get your mind right for when these things happen, that you're going to feel like an idiot, increasingly stupid as this thing goes on. And, uh, the only thing you can do is sort of concentrate on your plan that you have beforehand. You know, if you're, if you're still earning an income, it's, it's actually great because it means that you're investing and buying more and more of the things that you want to own. And you should just keep on doing that. And at some point, it does recover. And,
2: and then you'll feel great a few years later. It doesn't feel good when you're going through it, though. So I was curious in your valuation process, you're looking at you know, liquidation values and other types of values and calculations you're doing. And today we have very low interest rates and very high inflation. So I was curious are you using a discount rate in your analysis? And if so, how are you coming up with that? That's actually a great
1: question. And I've spent a lot of time. It's one of the things that is, if you're doing a DCF, you need a discount rate. For discounted cash flow, it literally has it in the name. You need the discount rate. It's really, really hard. And this has been the hardest thing over the last decade is what's the right discount rate? And I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does either. I think that you could say, so, well, here's how Buffett does it. Buffett just doesn't pay more than 10 times. That's kind of his approach. I, and I respect it. It just means that he's not, you know, he just doesn't ever pay up for stuff. He just waits until it gets cheap enough. Buffett's metric is 10 times what? 10 times earnings, 10 times his calculation of owner earnings. Good catch. See, I was, I was going to let that one go. <laughs> yeah, 10 times, 10 times owner earnings, which is, it's, that's not the bottom line. That's, that's what he thinks it's going to generate, probably in cash terms. For the business, so you know, Apple sat there for a very long period of time. When Apple got cheap enough, he just he put a third of his book into it, and then it rallied three times. I still think that's the greatest trade ever because it's the most amount of money deployed in a single trade, and then you know recovered so quickly. And he's so disciplined; he just sits in there. He's got 140 billion dollars in cash, still sitting there waiting for something like that. He uses ten times. I invest in a way that doesn't actually require a discount rate because that little explanation that I gave before, the one that that is based on Greenwald's investment process or investment sort of tool, there's no discount rate in that. And I like that because it it takes away that necessity of like, is 1.5% the appropriate discount rate? Because that's the 10-year right now. Or would you want to take the long-run average of the 10-year, which is about 6%? And that's historically what people have done, taken about six percent, then added some risk premium on top of that. I think that's what Buffett's doing. Six percent plus a risk premium probably gets him to about ten percent. He hasn't seemed to have stepped it down much at all through this period. But I do it without using a discount rate. So there's no discount rate in that. Like look at your currently what what the thing is earning, look at what it's going to reinvest in its business, look at what that will do incrementally. And one of the, the nice things about that is it does have built into it. The multiple, it's just hard to, if you don't get enough of a yield back out, you don't get enough reinvestment back in. And so you, you're sort of forced into these lower things. And you might then say, well, I, I want—I I know roughly what the, what the market is expecting. So the market return on equity is about 13.3% for the S&P 500 uh, reinvestment rate, I think is about 60%. And so you can look at that and say, is this thing that I'm currently looking at a better company than average? Is it cheaper than average? I'm in a pretty good position here, I think, to to do well. I tend to like drive. I want much, much cheaper than average, and like about the average in terms of in terms of uh, business quality. So I, I tend to pay a little bit less
2: than ten times. But you know, I'm no Buffett. So if I if I was a better analyst, I might pay more. Now let's talk a bit more about your funds. The first fund I believe you started was the Acquires Fund. Could you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, it launched in May
1: 2019. At the time, the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued was extraordinarily wide, historically wide. It's proceeded to get wider since then, which that's not good for for value guys. The idea is that it's just trying to buy the cheapest 30 names in the market. And I look at balance sheet and business quality, and I try to buy things that they're, they're cheaper than they appear optically. And they're probably better than they appear optically, and I'm trying to buy them at a price that allows me to generate pretty good. So I want, I want sort of 15% or better returns from each name in the book. And I typically I try to aim for about 17 and percent just because I think that there's a lot that can go wrong in business. A lot of these names aren't going to generate those returns. So I'm not saying that these are the returns that the fund is going to do. I'm telling you what the raw input. Is at the top. And then, you know, whatever happens to these businesses happens to them. And I think that you probably likely see returns that are lower than that because competition and whatever else happens. And then I want businesses that, so they have to be rock solid from a balance sheet perspective, good businesses that are sustainable with pretty good margins. That's that's, I'm sort of mostly interested in margins. I'm less interested in return on equity because I think it's a mean reverting series for the most part, both ways. And I want management to be doing something about that undervaluation. So I want them in there buying back material amounts of stock. So you'll find there's lots of companies out there that buy back enough stock to sort of mop up the options that they issue to management every year. So it might even be like a 15% buyback. It looks really good, but on a net buyback basis and net shares repurchased, it's it's flat or it's even the share counts going up. I want something that for a decade, they've opportunistically bought back stock at really good times. And that's often so Lockheed Martin is one that's in my book right now. And I picked it up before Burry, before Michael Burry did, or I picked it up at the same time that he did. I didn't buy it because he bought it. And if you look at the share count, they've bought back about 17% of their business over the last decade. It still generates really good returns on equity. It's a very strong balance sheet. Very high transmission of earnings into cash flow, and it's a very, very stable business. And I think that that's one of those businesses that can sort of generate mid-teens returns for an extended period of time and you're not paying very much for it right now. So that's kind of pretty good representation of what ends up in the portfolio, just cheap rock solid business, rock solid balance sheet, and what happens happens after I buy it.
2: So does the fund go short? Some companies as well, how does that work?
1: So, the fund has been has shorted in the past. There are going to be some regulatory changes here that make it much more difficult to be short. And I also think that I've kind of reassessed myself as an investor, having gone through March 2020. And what I think that I want to do, that what we're doing now, is we're going to remove the short book for the reason that it introduces, while having a short book means that I would inevitably do better in a drawdown it sort of protects you on a mark-to-market basis. It does introduce this existential risk that any one of those positions could blow up. Now, I short very small. I short 1% of the book or less, and I rebalance very regularly. And I tend to be in stuff that's not heavily shorted, so I already do all of those things. But nevertheless, you still run the risk when you have a short on that you get caught in. Tesla could go up, Many, many. I'm not that I'm short Tesla, but you could be short Tesla and have it go up, you know, as many times as it has. But that's happened before with VW. I just forget the. I, I can't remember if it was poor. I, f- I just forget who it was who though. But they, they got squeezed and it can go up ten times. So the short. Well, we've seen it with AMC. We've seen it with GME. We've seen it regu- regularly. It's not a new phenomenon that short squeezes occur. But I can I imagine if I stay short a book of names for the next 40 years that I will get short squeezed in there sometimes sort of seems almost inevitable to me. So I think that what I would like to do instead is to remove the short book and just remove that risk completely. And I just rely on the fact that I can identify these undervalued names and over a long enough period of time, the market should wake up to the fact that they are in fact undervalued and they should be able to generate returns without the short book. So that's what I've done. I've, I've taken off. We're in the process of taking off the shorts. We've already announced it to the market. It'll happen December 7th. And then from there on, it'll be a long-only fund. Just for that reason that I'm trying to eliminate any little bit of risk
2: that I can find in anything that could blow me up. Yeah, that makes sense. So your other fund is the Acquires Deep Value Fund. Is that right? That's the small and micro fund. That's I, I partnered with Roundhill to do
1: that. It's exactly the same approach. It's long only, but it's small and micro. It, they're, they're, they're all US focused only. So there's no international stocks. Other than. There might be some like Canadian or there might be some stuff that's got a secondary listing in the States that I will buy. It just has to be traded in the States. I love small and micro because that's where I started. The opportunity in small and micro continues to be one of the best that I've ever seen. It's just been so beaten up for so long that what the market has been for the last decade has been high growth large cap have really been the beneficiaries. And so, if you look at again, if you go to Morningstar and you have a look at the style boxes of the funds that have done very well, like Ark, for example, their little you know, they're like their centroid will be high growth large cap, and their distribution is all like heavily slanted up into that right hand corner. And if you look at the funds that I run, they tend to be on the exact opposite side. They'll be smaller and their, their extreme value. So when any sort of external party does a third-party factor analysis of my funds, the first thing that stands out is they are the deepest value funds that you'll find out there. And the second thing that stands out is they, they tend to be very high quality because I like cash flows and stock being bought back. That hasn't done very well in this market until about February this year. It, started, it has started to do a little bit better relatively. But the ordinary course is that that approach to the market, smaller and better, and value has typically been a good way to, to generate better returns than the market. So I, I think that over time, given enough time, that's sort of what we'll see.
2: Tobias, thank you so much for coming onto our show and sharing your knowledge. I think just with the current environment, it's so important for people to learn about and hear, at least hear about value investing and consider how it might fit into their own portfolios. Now, before I close things out, where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about you and your funds? Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Clay. That was, uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. There's some great
1: questions in there. My firm is called Acquirers Funds, and it's acquirersfunds.com. I have a little website called acquirersmultiple.com, which has got like a free stock screener. And we post podcasts and blog posts, just sort of walking through value investing and deep value investing and people who are in the space and what's happening, what people have said. Um, And I do this with two buddies of mine who are both value investors. We have a little podcast where we chat about it called The Acquirer's Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. It's a funny spelling. I'll probably have to change that at some point. But I post the links to all the stuff that we do on that, if that's your preferred approach. And the two funds are the acquirer's fund, which is the mid-cap and larger. That's Z-I-G, ZIG, because you want to ZIG when the market zags. And then the small and micro one is deep, because that's deep values, the the approach. But they're the same approach to the market. Just
2: one is mid-cap and
1: large cap, and the other one is small and micro.
2: Got it. I will say that I do enjoy listening to you, Jake and Bill talk about the markets on your show. I appreciate that. We we tried to recreate... It's called Value After Hours. We tried to
1: recreate these conversations that we were having. I mean, we were having these conversations on Zoom and I just thought this would be fun if, like, if we could keep on doing this and people hear what we say, because this is what you guys talk about behind closed doors or in the bar after hours. And um, we're Pretty open, and you've seen we're we're open about what we think about, you know, Tesla or crypto or NFTs, for example. And so I get lots of nice emails. I get lots of nasty emails, but it it uh, is—it's all—it's all authentic. It's the real thing.
2: I love it, Toby. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Clay. My absolute pleasure. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets.